So I had to face the most challenging decision in my life. Um, Should I um, obey the commands and live with guilt for the rest of my life by violating every single principle I was brought up on? Should I um, refuse and end up with a bullet in my head? Or should I escape? My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Munja Dalmaderas is one of Australia's most successful refugees. Very much in the vein of an Ando or a Frank Lowy, uh, he is somebody who has come to Australia from Iraq, uh, leading an extraordinary life both before he came, on the way, uh, and since he's arrived. He's a pioneer in the technique of osseointegration, which involves uh, directly grafting limb implants onto humans. Uh, His story starts in Iraq, uh, born in the same year as me, 1972, uh, but to much more distinguished lineage. Uh, uh, Let's let's start uh, uh, with with your upbringing. You're uh, descended directly from the Prophet Muhammad, is that right? That's right. Thank you very much for having me here um, on your podcast. Um, um, My family um, are direct um, line descendants. My Muhammad, the Prophet Muhammad, is my grand grand grandfather, uh, basically. And um, uh, in the West, and mainly in um, in different monarchies around Europe, um, usually blue um, uh, bloodline uh, goes with royalty and nobility. Um, in, in the Arab world, and uh, definitely in the Islamic world. Um, uh, People who have blue-red um, bloodline are the ones who are descendant from the Prophet Muhammad. So your grandfather was, uh, as you've described it, the Iraqi equivalent of the Pope, and then your father was uh, was expected to take over that role. Uh, what happened next? So um, um, my grandfather was um, the head of the um, uh, Muslim uh, church, if you would um, call it that way, and... Um, um, Usually, one of the sons is um, dedicated to study uh, religion, and they they go through vigorous um, education, uh, and they study not just um, Islam; they study Christianity, Judaism, and other philosophies like Buddhism, Hinduism, and others. And my father went and did his due diligence and uh, and finished his studies, but then he decided that it's not a job for him, so. Um, um, especially his views about religion, um, in particular, were very different to um, uh, the way it's um, uh, methodically taught. And um, uh, he was a bit an outsider, and um, and he believed that um, um, all religions are equal and they have the same value. And um, um, if you are, um, you know, content with your own. Uh, belief and um, and try to do whatever is best for yourself and your family and the community. That's enough. And obviously, that was not 
um, uh, enough um, for him to lead the Muslim community. Um, uh, so um, he decided to take a different path, and that's the um, uh, path of justice and, and law. And then um, he climbed the ladder in the um, judicial uh, system in Iraq, and then he ended up being um, a Supreme Court judge. And then he became the chief, chief justice. And until the moment where Saddam Hussein came to power, and uh, due to my family's links with the with the uh, Iraqi monarchy, uh, basically he was forced to retire. You lived a uh, relatively well-off childhood, uh, overseas holidays, and uh, an opportunity to uh, engage in 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 the great Iraqi in- intellectual life. Uh, uh, tell us about the role that uh, playing chess at the club uh, played for your, your father. Um, my father was very obsessed with chess, and uh, it was not just a hobby. It was um, a kind of a, um, he was possessed by chess, unfortunately, and um, he took it to the extreme. And he was the Iraqi champion in chess. He wrote a couple of books in um, in chess, and um, our driver used to take him to the club and. Uh, and he would teach um, a lot of people and play with uh, different um, prominent figures in chess um, around the region. Um, and then uh, we would pick him up um, late at night. And, and, that w- and he spent most of his um, uh, retired life uh, in that area. However, uh, this club is usually um, um, attended by uh, the intellectual people from the Iraqi society and uh, um, you would go there and you see a lot of uh, prominent uh, writers, uh, uh, politicians and um, uh, judges and, and, and other uh, people who are influential in the society from the old era, basically. Um, and um, it was very interesting because uh, uh, a lot of the time he would take me with him. And uh, I remember one of his very close friends used to be called Ali Lwarti, and um, this particular person, he was a philosopher, and um, he was a very, very, um, uh, like, uh, opinionated about uh, the way Islam is is uh, conducted. And, um, uh, and I'm, I was so surprised that um, he was let uh, to write um, in, in kind of a society because uh, his views were very, like, on, on the verge of being blasphemy, um, uh, so um, I learned a lot uh, from um, uh, from attending these kind of clubs and, um, mm. and opened my eyes very early in the days about politics, about religion, about uh, um, um, humanity and about um, um, yeah, discrimination, etc. You studied medicine, uh, uh, well, you, wa- you wanted to study at New York University but ended up stu- studying in, uh, in Basra. Um, what was that like? So I, I I managed to go to school comfortably. I was living in a bubble, basically. I was completely insulated from what's going on in Iraq. And, and if you mind your own business, you can live your life normally in Iraq under Saddam's regime. And um, uh, to, uh, to the records, um, uh, for the records, I, I have to um, 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 say that um, um, we were not um, harassed by the government, despite... Uh, uh, of my family connection with the old uh, mm. um, uh, regime. Uh, so I went to Baghdad Grammar, uh, Baghdad Jesuit School, and um, uh, and uh, it's the same school that Saddam's sons went to and, and um, 
They a lot of lovely, ministers. Lovely schoolmates, uh, terrific guys to have around. Well, um, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. They, um, um, they, we, we wouldn't mix with them, and um, because they had their own group and and their own um, uh, people that they mix with, and um, uh, unfortunately, they were different kind of people, and um, um, it's very clear that they were. Uh, people who are newcomers and um, um, from different kind of social um, uh, standard and background, and um, um, and they were very dangerous as well. Mm-hmm. So um, so we tried to avoid them like a plague. Um, so uh, but then um, my hopes were to go to um, uh, study medicine um, in uh, New York uh, University, and I paid the tuition. Everything was planned. Um, however. Um, all of a sudden, on the second of uh, August, um, uh, nineteen nineteen ninety, Saddam was stupid enough to um, invade Kuwait, and um, as a result of that, the, the Iraqi border was shut. Uh, there was a ban on travel, and mm. um, and all uh, my hopes um, disappeared basically. And I had to find uh, a university in Iraq, and the only place that would take me was Basra University, which is ironically the closest city to the war zone. So I had to go there and um, uh, and I witnessed um, uh, the war firsthand, basically. How did you how did you witness the war firsthand? So Basra was the border town or border city uh, uh, with Kuwait, and um, uh, we. Um, um, Started um, uh, school normally, and um, and you could see the uh, uh, the troops uh, um, moving uh, toward the um, um, the the city of Kuwait, and uh, um, and Basra was the first city to be hit by the uh, coalition. Uh, basically, um, I remember vividly that. Um, I think it was on the seventeenth of January uh, when the, the airstrike started. Um, we were not told anything, um, and I had a chemistry exam the next day. It was mid-year exams, and uh, um, and life was normal. But you, when you turn on the radio and uh, you listen to the BBC, and it tells you that uh, the count uh, the uh, the countdown is uh, is almost done, and mm. uh, um, and the clock is ticking uh, for the beginning of the air raids, and uh, um, and and I remember that. Um, at 2 p.m. or so, um, you could hear the roar of the B-52s flying over, um, and then the bombing started. And um, um, uh, like we went to a rooftop of one of the um, high rises in Basra, and you can see the whole city lit on, lit on fire. That surrounding all the airfields, uh, uh, all the um, uh, oil refineries and um, uh, the telecommunication centers and um, um, so I drove early uh, in the morning around 6 a.m. to go to the hospital and see what's going on and um, uh, now as a first year medical student don't even know how to stitch um, a wound and mm. um, and I noticed that the demographic and, and the structure of the uh, of the street has changed and all of a sudden, I noticed that there were high rises from on both sides uh, of the road have collapsed completely, and uh, due to uh, the bombing. And then, when I got to the hospital, it was um, um, absolute chaos. Uh, there were people um, uh, uh, rushed to the hospital, uh, brought by cars, um, uh, 
pickup trucks, wheelbarrows, you name it. And um, they evacuated the whole um, medical section and um, and uh, and they created um, uh, emergency um, uh, surgical um, uh, facilities in the corridors and mm. uh, uh, emergency operating rooms in in the medical school etc. And anyone um, that can um, uh, you know uh, be of use um, uh, was asked to uh, to assist and anyone that can wear a, um, a white coat um, um, was asked to be involved. What did you do? I managed to uh, take some shells out of um, of um, a few uh, injured people and mm. uh, um, uh, put a few stitches in in wounds and uh, you know um, uh, put pressure on some bleeding um, limbs and it was very terrifying and it was an eye opening um, uh, for me to the real world and mm. the real um, uh, deal about uh, war and about. Um, um, uh, all the disasters that comes with it. And you then moved on to Baghdad, where you uh, finished finished your study and uh, became a, a junior doctor, and and then had a an episode experienced an episode uh, in a hospital that was to go was to change your life. Uh, tell us about that. So um, um, after I finished the first year, and after the liberation of Kuwait, um, uh, I managed to. Um, score high enough to be transferred to Baghdad University and I finished my um, uh, medical school in Baghdad and uh, life kind of normalized again and um, um, you know you get the uh, odd bombing uh, by the coalition and you get the odd um, you know Bill Clinton was um, uh, in power then and um, he bombed Baghdad several times on air raids but it was like very trivial there were fireworks very similar to Sydney fireworks. The only difference, they were real planes shot by real missiles. Um, and, um, and everything was fine as, as it can be in these kind of circumstances. Um, I finished medical school. Um, one day I was um, going to work in the um, uh, theatre complex um, in, um, in Baghdad University Hospital and uh, uh, the day seemed to be normal until the moment where uh, we were confronted with uh, a large number of um, army deserters um, um, in handcuffs escorted by uh, Republican guards and Ba'ath Party members. There were three busloads of them or so. And uh, these were part of the call-up for anyone born in 1972, yes. which is the year in which we're, we're both born as well. So the reason I know that particularly because I had to go and register um, uh, for service. And mm. um, um, because I was a doctor, I was exempted um, um, from uh, participating in the, in the military um, uh, training. Um, so um, people who um, uh, fail to attend, uh, they would be given an amnesty for uh, a month or so, and then after that um, they um, would be captured if they found, and, um, and then they uh, would be treated like uh, traitors. Mm. And... Um, uh, or army deserters, and as a result of that, the um, um, the rule of Saddam was to be punished, uh, uh, to be punishing these people by um, uh, maiming them, basically, and um, and the orders were to um, mutilate these people by uh, taking part of the ears off, and um, um, ironically, um, uh, he wanted 
them to have it done humanely under general anesthetics, um, which doesn't make any sense. And um, but that's the way he thought. He think uh, he thought back then, and th that's the way he conducted his business. He he had this kind of ideology that uh, he's um, um, doing justice uh, to people. Uh, which is um, very barbaric. And um, so they were brought uh, to the theatre complex. We were ordered to abandon the elective list and start uh, performing the surgeries on them. The head of the department refused openly and um, he said, this is against the Hippocratic Oath, do no harm. Um, I'm not doing that. Uh, so they dragged him outside to the car park in front of everybody. They put a bullet in his head and then... Um, they turned to the rest of us and they said, well, now we attracted your attention. Anyone share this man's view, come forward, otherwise proceed with our orders. So I w had to face the most challenging decision in my life. Um, should I um, obey the commands and live with guilt for the rest of my life by violating every single principle I was brought up on? Should I um, refuse and end up with a bullet in my head or should I escape? And I decided to run away. Um, I found a cubicle in the female toilets and um, I managed to stay there for five hours. They felt like five years. And then after the surgeries were conducted and everybody finished, um, I sneaked out of the hospital. I couldn't even go to my car in the car park and um, I took a taxi to the outskirts of Baghdad. And then with the help of a friend, um, I was um, uh, taken to a farm to hide there for uh, several days until my family and uh, friends prepared a passport for me. And till now, I don't know if that passport was legitimate or not. Mm. And uh, they prepared a large sum of money and they gave it to me and they smuggled me through the borders um, with Jordan to, um, to Amman. If you hadn't been able to hide, do you think you would have been able to face death rather than performing those procedures? Well, you must have thought about that the, in the, the years since. The rule in Iraq is very simple. Um, if you oppose Saddam, you face death. And uh, the price of a human life back then in Iraq was the price of the bullet that shoot them um, and uh, that take their life away. And um, it was so easy. And I've witnessed um, on several occasions um, uh, executions uh, in, in Iraq. My next-door neighbor, he was... Um, um, a father of two uh, young children, a boy and a girl. Um, he um, 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 was an army deserter and someone uh, tipped the authorities about his um, hiding um, in. Um, um, they um, found him, they dragged him outside in the street in his underwear and uh, um, they basically um, performed a public execution and they forced his... Um, wife, his father, and uh, sorry, not his father, his his brothers, and um, uh, his, the rest of his family to witness his execution. And they um, gave um, uh, the family uh, a bill um, of the price of the bullet. The family had to pay for the bullet. Um, um, I think it was the equivalent of 25 um, Iraqi dinners, which is like five cents or something, but, um, but it's... Um, it, it is an barbaric. insult and yes. it's a barbaric thing. And um, after the execution, uh, they would um, uh, bury the body and they're not allowed to have a funeral. 
So you escaped across to Jordan. Where did your journey take you from there? So Jordan was not safe back then. Um, Jordan was the backyard of the Iraqi intelligence services um, um, on those days. And um, uh, so the only place that would um, uh, accept an Iraqi uh, national with half-decent passport was um, uh, Malaysia. Malaysia would give Iraqi nationals 14-day visa mm. uh, to um, uh, study English. Um, so I decided that I would take this journey and... Um, I took the plane, uh, and um, coincidentally, I in transit in Abu Dhabi, I met two young men um, of Iraqi background, and um, you look at their hand; their hands were very rough, um, filled with cracks, and you can tell that they are uh, manual laborers. And um, I sat with them; they were very nervous, and uh, they couldn't speak a word of English, and um, <clears throat> you know. Uh, in Abu Dhabi airport, if you don't speak English or one of the subcontinent language, you cannot communicate because mm. there are no locals there. Um, um, so I managed to interpret for them, and they found me useful. And um, then um, we opened uh, the line of communication, um, and I asked them the question. Uh, I said, where are you guys going? And they looked at me suspiciously, and they said, what do you mean? We are tourists. And I said, yeah, right. You, you look very touristy to me. And um, I, obviously I figured out that they were escaping from Iraq and mm. um, uh, heading somewhere. So um, they said, okay, we, we will do a deal with you. If you promise that you will help us with interpreting, um, then we will take you with us. And I said, fine. Um, uh, I'm desperate to find a place to go, uh, go to. We didn't know where we were going. Mm. They had a small piece of paper with a number written on it and um, we landed in KL airport <clears throat> after we passed customs um, uh, we managed to dial the number and uh, on the other line it was uh, Mr. Mahdi the smuggler and uh, that was my first interaction with a people smuggler um, he um, said come and meet me in Chowkit it's a place where you uh, uh, buy fake Louis Vuitton bags and Rolex watches. Mm. And uh, he said, I'll be standing in front of McDonald's and I'll be wearing um, a brown hat, shirt and uh, shorts and uh, you'll recognize me. Um, we got out of the taxi and he looked like Steve Irwin to me. He was blonde, blue eyes. <laughs> um, and um, he took us aside and he said, um, uh, with a great deal of confidence, he said, give me your money, this amount of money. And it was like several thousand dollars. And uh, give me your passports and I'll come back to you tomorrow with your next destination. We had no clue um, uh, whether he's going to come back or not. So mm. I uh, questioned him and I said, well, hang on, I just met you five minutes ago. How do you expect me to trust you with my um, money and um, um and this uh, and and my passport that you will come back tomorrow. And he looked at me and he was so offended. And he said, "How dare you question my credibility? I'm a respectable smuggler." And um, um, and then he said, "Listen, smartass, you uh, do you have any other choice?" Mm. And I said, "Well, technically speaking, I don't." Um, uh, so um, he turned up to be a respectable smuggler. He came the next day with um, <clears throat> first class. Garuda airline tickets uh, to Jakarta and um, a stamp on the passport, uh, a visa to um, Indonesia. And he said, um, look, uh, I'm very specific about what you need to do. And um, um, he um, said, don't go to the 
uh, custom officer with a beard. Don't go to the covered woman. Don't go to the guy with the high-ranking, um, um, like many stars on his sh- on his shoulders. Um, I want you to go to um, uh, the guy with one star. Give him your passport. Make sure you put a hundred dollars inside your passport. And I said, well, hang on. Are you expecting me to bribe a custom officer in a major international airport? And he looked at me and he said, yes. Do you have a problem with that? And um, I mean, it was so easy for a person to say that, and um, and uh, and it was completely alien to me, um, mm. like facing these kind of um, uh, situations. And but I didn't have any choice. In in a world of uh, where so many people are getting conned and ripped off, I mean, the, uh, you're questioning my credibility. Line is a classic response that con men uh, come back to when their mark seems to uh, seems to be catching on. Absolutely, uh, could so easily have gone wrong. So uh, lucky, uh, this this guy was not. Uh, he was very serious about conducting his business, mm. and obviously he wanted to keep the line of um, um, trafficking um, of people uh, going. So um, um, he was very very accurate, and um, um, we got to Jakarta. He gave us another phone number, and he said, "Contact this number, and they will tell you where to go." So. We had no idea whether we we're going to go to Canada, America, Europe, or um, Oceania, and um, so um, um, we got to a hotel in the outskirts of Jakarta. It was like an hour plus journey in the taxi, and uh, as we entered the foyer, <laughs> there were tens of Middle Eastern-looking people. It was a very uh, depressive um, uh, situation where. Um, all these people were very desperate. They were um, uh, they're stuck for months and months. A lot of them have lost all their money. Mm-hmm. And um, the two guys that I accompanied pretty much saved my life because they couldn't keep their mouth shut. And they started telling people, oh, this, uh, you know, uh, we're here, we came from uh, um, uh, Abu Dhabi and we brought this doctor with us. And um, I didn't realize that doctors are important until that moment. Why was a doctor important? So uh, I thought this is the end of the tunnel and um, it was a dark end and there was no light at at the other side. And uh, I went to my room and I thought, what am I doing here? And I'm going to stay here forever. And... Mm. um, but then there was a, a knock on my door, and this time it was um, uh, Mr. Omid the smuggler, and he was um, a heavily bearded guy and um, wearing black and black, very short stature, um, um, fair complexions, um, and um, speak with broken Arabic, and I could see that he was of a Kurdish background, but pretending to be <clears throat> a Shiite Arab <clears throat> Uh, and every um, second sentence he mentioned verses from the Quran and um, um, not that he knows the Quran very well because um, um, obviously he was trying to make up um, his religious affiliation and um, uh, to attract certain kind of people and um, mainly people coming from Iran Um, and he said to me are you the doctor and I said yes I am a doctor what can I do for you? And um, uh, and he said, "Well, I prayed to God that God will um, um, help me with a with an imam or a religious leader." And 
I said, okay. And he said, that imam is coming from um, Iran tomorrow. And, uh, and I prayed to God that God will provide me with a doctor. And you're the doctor. And I said, well, still doesn't make any sense. What can I do for you? And he said, well, the imam is coming from Iran with um, a piece of clay that is, um, uh, it's a holy clay. It's mixed with the, the Prophet Muhammad's grandson blood from Karbala. I said, okay. And he said, I have a brand new boat that uh, is leaving to Australia in two days. That was the first time for me to know that there is hope. Um, and knowing about the potential of getting to Australia. Mm. Um, and he said, the imam will sprinkle dust from that clay uh, into the waters and he will uh, make the waters calm and the journey of the boat will be safe. And I said, wow, this is a magnificent technology. All ship liners should have this kind of uh, <laughs> technology. And uh, and he said, but I have a problem. And I said, obviously, <laughs> tell me about it. And, uh, and he said... Um, uh, the imam has few children with him and uh, one of his daughters is heavily pregnant and uh, I don't want him to be distracted by her. So I need a doctor to look after the daughter so um, he can concentrate on calming the waters for the boat. And I said, well, now clicks. Uh, and um, okay. Um, and, uh, and I asked him and I said, how many people will be on the boat? And he said, Oh, it's a brand new boat. I said, that's beside the point. I need to know how many people. And he said, oh, around 50 or so. And what do you need? And I said, well, I need a lot of drips, um, giving sets, um, 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 uh, normal saline bags, um, uh, a lot of uh, anti-emetic like nausea and vomiting mm. um, tablets and um, injections um, and, um, um, uh, you know, a lot of, fluid to um, and cannulas uh, for these people and uh, because they will a lot of them will will be will have seasickness and they will get dehydrated and he said that's fine i'll get it for you tomorrow and i said well hang on these are medical supplies you can't get these medical supplies uh, that easy um you can't go to the chemist and buy them and he said don't you worry i'm very heavily connected here did you see all these police cars outside and they were like 10 or so police cars outside the mm. hotel. And I said, yeah, I noticed that. He said, all of these cars are for my protection. I'm very important here. And uh, obviously this guy turned up to be very well connected. The next day he brought all what I asked for. Um, the journey started uh, from Jakarta in the early hours of the morning uh, in a bus. We were around 50. Um, it took us 24 hours or so to reach an abandoned village uh, in the southern shore of uh, Java. And unfortunately, um, this smuggler was not as respectable as the one before him. When we got to the village, we uh, found out that uh, it was not only us. Uh, there were two other buses filled with people. And uh, the boat was not as he promised. It was a leaky boat that's not seaworthy. And they started stripping people from all their uh, belongings, watches, jewellery, um, anything they could take from them and started filling the boat. And eventually we ended up being crammed like um, sardines vertically. There was no space to sit down on the boat. Um, a lot of people that 
we're crammed on the boat, we're of Middle Eastern background, never seen a sea mm. before. Um, and uh, it was a fishing boat with a main hull in the middle for um, as a fish container. And um, not knowing that this is the worst place to be, uh, they were fighting, um, people were fighting uh, each other to get to that, uh, to have a spot inside that fish fishing container. Um, not knowing that um, they will suffocate from uh, the diesel fumes and uh, um, and because they are crowded there will be lack of oxygen and that was my biggest problem because I had to pull a lot of these people from that fishing container to their surface so they can breathe because a lot of them lost consciousness um, the journey started the boat journey was horrific and I can't describe it no matter what I do um, uh, but I can tell you a simple uh, uh, um, kind of comparison. Um, I I do have a boat now in Sydney Harbour, and um, and I take a lot of visitors around the harbour on weekends, and um, on occasions I try to uh, uh, you know uh, play a game with them and take them outside the heads, and uh, everybody turns green yes. the minute because the sea is very rough, and it was very rough, and people started vomiting, and um, obviously the um, the imam's um, piece of clay turned up made in China didn't do any any good work, <laughs> and um, it was not as uh, as holy as wasn't able to calm the waves for you. <laughs> yeah, so it didn't calm any waves, and I was a horrible and hopeless doctor. And I, I couldn't help many people because um, it was very rocky uh, boat, and it was like a uh, like a, a war zone. This this boat at the end. We, um, uh, to make it worse, um, as uh, we reach international waters, I could see that there was a big grey ship with white numbers written on it tailing us. And I was wondering what that ship is mm. doing. So um, once we got to international waters, um, that ship came very close to us and a black dinghy came from that ship and joined us. And we had our um, Indonesian skipper, with very broken English, he said to us, straight Christmas Island, uh, miss mainland uh, in two weeks, um, I go home, goodbye. And uh, he jumped on that dinghy and left us. Um, so now you have to pilot the boat yourselves to so, Christmas Island. So we had to, um, uh, you know, navigate in, in these rough seas um, um a boat that is not seaworthy. We didn't mm. know how much fuel is left and... Um, it was a miserable situation, and um, um, we were left to face the elements on our own. Um, we were very lucky that there was an Iraqi sailor uh, that escaped from the Iraqi Navy that um, uh, could read uh, maritime charts, and um, he um, managed to steer the boat to safety. We got to Christmas Island eventually after 36 hours. Um, it was a very rough journey. Um, by the end of it, uh, we were less than 10 people that didn't um, lose consciousness and um, everybody was on the ground on top of each other, uh, covered with their body fluid. And um, um, But once we got to Christmas Island, everything changed. So this is 19, 1999 and uh, you s you've spoken before about the contrast between how you were treated on Christmas Island uh, by the federal police 
and then what happened when you entered the Curtin detention facility. Uh, tell us about that contrast, what it was to go from being Munjid the doctor to being number 982. So basically, in Christmas Island, there were, uh, Christmas Island was not a, a detention centre back then. Christmas Island was just a phosphate um, uh, mining island, and um, it's 200 uh, nautical miles uh, south of uh, uh, Java, and um, it was a beautiful island. It was the red crab season. Um, it, there were around 100 million red crabs on the island. The whole island was covered with red. Um, it's very sad that the number of red crabs are uh, halved now, and uh, um, and and that's um, not because of refugees. That's because of um, the yellow ants that come with merchant ships, and um, they spit um, acid in red crabs' eyes, and then feed on them mm. and kill them. So, but that's a different story. <laughs> um, and Christmas Island could be a beautiful destination for tourism, and um, they were five or so police, uh, federal police, and um, we were received with great deal of hospitality and very, very uh, um, uh, nice people. Um, and um, we were taken to a basketball stadium. They had uh, mattresses um, in that stadium and uh, they had a lot of Salvation Army clothes and we had clean change of clothes and we were given the best showers. Uh, um, I still remember vividly the warm shower that I received after this horrific journey. And to make it better, um, I heard the first um, Australian joke and uh, the federal police captain introduced me to his deputy and um, he was a very tall um, gentleman of obviously a, a Dutch background or so, and he said, look at his uh, shoulder, and he showed me his shoulder. He had a, a scar on his clavicle, um, which seems to be from a, a previous injury, hmm. and um, um, and he said, when you get out of the mainland detention centre, I want you to go to this place called Tasmania. We had to chop off one of his heads, and a few of his fingers looked like that. <laughs> I couldn't understand the joke back then, but um, um, there you go. He was just trying to comfort me and mm. um, and uh, and be friendly. And um, we uh, were treated very humanely by the federal police. And um, um, I learned very important lessons on Christmas Island. And I think on the fourth day, I learned the most important lesson in my life, uh, basically, um, I was um, asked by the federal police to accompany them to intercept another boat. Um, and um, uh, we went uh, on two barges. And one barge was uh, the federal captain as well as uh, his deputy. And on another barge, I was with another official, um, um, uh, an officer, uh, who met me for the first time. And he didn't care who I was. Um, and I've never met him since. Uh, but um, as we went to the sea, uh, he looked at me and he um, said, when was the last time you spoke to your family? And I um, said to him, just before I left Jakarta, he said, so you don't know um, if, uh, so your family do not know whether you're alive or dead. And I said, no, they don't. Um, so he said, well, sit on the ground. Uh, what I'm gonna do is breaking the law and I'm putting my job on the line, and don't you dare tell ev anyone. Mind you that, I tell everyone now. And he pulled out a satellite phone from his pocket, and he handed me the phone, and he said, dial the number, call your 
family and tell them that you're safe and they may not hear from you for a few more years because you will spend time in detention center. So this guy didn't have to do what he did, but he um, saw in front of him a human being in need of help mm. and he offered the help. And um, thanks to him, I managed to uh, speak to my mum and comfort her about uh, my safety and uh, and thanks to him she continued to live till the day I was um, um, released because I, I'm I'm sure that she would have um, died if uh, she didn't hear from me um, so I'm forever grateful to this man and I wish that one day uh, he would hear um, what I'm uh, saying about him um, Funny enough, the um, um, uh, the boat turned up um, to be filled with Vietnamese people. I was a hopeless interpreter, obviously. Um, <laughs> but then things are quite different when you get to Kurt. So I, w I spent five days on Christmas Island, and uh, I was a bit upset that I was the last person to leave Christmas Island because um, I was interpreting for people. So the captain on the island um, tried to comfort me and he said, enjoy it while you can because the treatment on the mainland will be completely different. And he was absolutely spot on. The minute we were handed over to the ACM, I don't know if you call it the American Correctional Management or Australian Correctional Management, um, the treatment completely changed. From the gentle, uh, respectable, um, um, kind uh, treatment by the federal police, the ACM treatment was absolutely brutal. Um, we were treated like animals. Uh, the first thing that happened to me as I entered the Curtin Detention Center was that I was stripped of my human identity. Um, my name was taken away from me. I was marked with a permanent marker on my shoulder with a number 982. Um, and we were kept inside um, compounds from within the main detention center. Um, we slept on army stretchers and in tents for months. There was one tap water in the middle. Um, we were locked uh, from 7 p.m. till 7 a.m. in these um, um, uh, compounds behind barbed wires. And uh, we were head counted four times a day. You have to stand in a queue for two hours plus in the heat of the uh, sun and the desert in northwestern Australia um, for hours to be headcounted. It was extremely humiliating. Um, for nearly a year, we were fed uh, colorless spaghetti with minced meat and was given an apple in the afternoon and um, an orange in the evening. And I don't mean to be petty about it, but it gets into you. It took me nine years to eat spaghetti bolognese. And I still remember vividly the Easter egg that we received uh, on Easter. That was the only egg that I ate inside the detention center for um, uh, 10 months or so. Um, all of that I can understand, and all of that I can um, appreciate from the policy of the government. But... One thing that I couldn't digest and I would never accept as a human being, um, and that is um, at some stage we were 1,252 people. Um, among us there were 117 children. A lot of these children were unaccompanied minors. And um, there was no surveillance cameras. Um, these minors were locked behind barbed wires uh, in the middle of the darkness um, without any surveillance among uh, adults for months. And that was wrong. Um, 
um, as far as I know, um, um, we are the only country that incarcerate children among adults. And I witnessed that um, with my own eyes, that there was no surveillance. Um, these children were left alone uh, among adults to be cared by uh, foreigners and, and, and people who are not related to them. And you can imagine what could happen. So um, that's why I was fighting that constantly. Um, and um, I hope that one day uh, we, I find answers for what the government was doing. Um, um, obviously, I was very outspoken and um, um, I was singled out as a troublemaker. And um, no matter what I uh, tell you about Curtin Detention Center, I cannot give it ju justice. Um, but I can give you a simple comparison um, um, between uh, the detention center and the jail system. Um, I had the pleasure of um, uh, serving uh, significant time, many, many weeks, um, in different Australian prisons, um, including maximum security jail. And I can tell you something, the jail system in Western Australia is absolutely superb. I recommend it to everybody. <laughs> And you're being serious about this, aren't you? That the, the quality of the detention in places like Broome was, was much more humane than what you faced in, in the Curtin detention immigration. The, the jail system in Western Australia, the prison system in, in Western Australia, I can comment about it very clearly. Um, I was treated with dignity. I was treated with respect. I was called by my name, and that mm. means a lot. Uh, it means everything, basically. Um, I was given a clean change of clothes, um, I was um, uh, given proper food. I had access to reading newspapers, uh, watching TV, and I had access to uh, a library I could study. And um, um, I had access to a phone, mm. and mm. Uh, none of that existed in the detention center. And the treatment by the uh, prison officers was absolutely humane, absolutely perfect and um, they uh, they treated us with respect um, they uh, treated us as um, as individuals uh, not like the way we were treated in danger center which was like treating animals since being released from immigration det detention 20 years ago you've uh, become one of the uh, leading surgical pioneers in Australia with a technique of osseointegration. Tell us about osseointegration and, and what it was that led you after these extraordinarily traumatic experiences still to want to, to push the limits rather than to live an easy, safe and comfortable life doing the same thing as everybody around you. Look, I must admit, after facing horrific experience inside the detention center, and um, once I was released, I just wanted to move on with my life, and I wanted to um, turn a, 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 you know um, a, that uh, away from that past and live and move on with my life, mm. and um, and just forget about everything. Uh, however. Um, my nature is not like that, and um, and um, uh, I was always um, um, dreaming about doing something different and um, and making a difference. I'm not religious, but um, but there are a lot of uh, biblical uh, 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 like 
like um, uh, wisdom and uh, and one of one of which that I learned very well from my father is that um, if we leave this earth we we have to leave something behind either a, a charity that people can live from or knowledge that people can learn from or um, um, teach um, children to uh, to grow up and carry um, um, the good legacy and uh, and be positive um, mm. in the society so I was always uh, brought up to be positive and I was always brought up to look at the glass half full and I had a dream um, and in 1984 I watched the Terminator not knowing English very well I didn't understand the concept about the movie and um, so I wanted to make Terminators so um, and I'm very grateful uh, uh, to be in Australia. I'm very grateful to be, a, uh, and I'm very proud to be an Australian that I could do this. Um, so um, I was very determined that uh, I wasted so much time in the detention centre on uh, living on taxpayers and not being um, um, useful. So I started working the minute I was released. Um, my first job was toilet cleaning, and I loved it. Um, and then I started knocking on um, doors, trying to work as a doctor. And um, uh, funny enough, I went and um, uh, visited so many hospitals and uh, um, tried to ask them to give me a job. And obviously, I got rejected from every single place. And then um, I learned that uh, maybe I'm doing it wrong. And um, um, a wise man said that... Um, um, the ultimate insanity is keep doing the same thing and expect different results. So, uh, so uh, as a result of that, um, I went uh, and discovered a place called the Centrelink, and um, and I said to them, "I'm a doctor. I would like to work." And they said, "Well, you need to uh, do it by the book." And that was a very very important lesson, mind you. When we were released. Um, um, out of the detention center, I was not given any guidance. Um, I didn't know where to go. Um, there was nothing. It was just left in the street. Literally, right. I was left in the street outside the detention center, and I had to catch a bus from Derby to Broome. Um, and it was kind of meant to be a punishment by the immigration um, manager of the detention center, um, but he didn't realize that he gave me a great opportunity to travel around uh, the coast of Australia um, from Derby to Broome to Perth to Adelaide to uh, Melbourne to Sydney. And it was a fantastic journey. So I always learned to, uh, to spin uh, any kind of uh, situation in a positive way. Um, so I managed to get to the medical field and um, applied for different jobs. And I got, got the job and climbed the ladder very quickly. And I, I have to admit that the last thing I wanted is to remember the past. And I wanted to turn my back to all the past and concentrate on my life and move on and, um, and close that dark uh, um, uh, um, a door on that dark mm. past. Um, but, um, and I was very successful in, um, in, in pursuing my dream and becoming a, a successful doctor. And um, until that moment where I was... Uh, um, uh, allowed to um, join the orthopedic training scheme and um, um, as you may know uh, it's one of the most prestigious specialties in 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 Australia Excellent. and in the world and um, um, and there is a saying that um, the only difference between God and orthopod that 
God didn't think that he was an orthopod. And I don't mean that in, in a bad way, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but that was the moment where um, changed my life again. Mm. Um, on the day of my um, uh, welcome dinner uh, to join the orthopedic training, um, I was confronted with two of my peers who joined the training with me. And uh, to my face, they said it to each other, isn't it a shame that uh, the... Uh, Australian uh, orthopedic training scheme standard has dropped so low to allow a refugee to be one of us. And that was an eye-opener for me. And, um, and, and I said, well, hang on. Um, I think I should, um, I should reconsider uh, and I should um, think again about what I want to do. And from there onward, I decided that I will open all the doors in the past. And uh, I decided that um, uh, there is no room uh, in our society for hate. Mm. There is no room in our society for discrimination. And we all equal, regardless of our ethnicity, background, religion, and, um, and color. And from there onward, um, these two people gave me a massive uh, um, uh, momentum to, um, uh, uh, to pursue um, my main goal of... Um, achieving, uh, you know, um, uh, basically equality and and tolerance and um, and this is one of my um, uh, my goals in life is uh, that I work on um, uh, in every day and try to prove that um, uh, that we can't accept hate, we can't accept uh, discrimination, and and we have to treat each other the way we want to be treated. You have quite a different relationship with your patients than many surgeons uh, and do things like giving them your mobile number. Um, how much is that about you and how much is that something that you think other surgeons could learn from? Well, look, I mean, I get criticised a lot um, and um, I'm proud about what I do. Um, I don't sit on an ivory uh, uh, tower. Um, I believe that we are all equal and I believe that um, everybody... Um, uh, uh, deserve to be treated with respect, and um, and I trust uh, people, and um, I put um, 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 trust in everybody I meet, and um, uh, and um, and I do what I do um, because I truly believe that we are all equal, and um, it is not. Um, a common practice to um, uh, treat patients um, uh, as um, uh, uh, you know at the same level, and um, um, and I don't I, I'm not ashamed of calling a lot of my patients friends, and um, um, and I don't believe in in these artificial barriers. We are, after all, we are all humans. As long as we treat each other with respect, and as long as we don't breach the boundaries of uh, professionalism and um, um, there is no harm of treating a patient as a friend um, and um, and I think this will um, increase the trust in the in the field and in the profession um, opposite to what a lot of people think um, um, I don't talk uh, um, to people from above I, I talk to them um, from the same level and um, um, and after all I, I truly believe that um, my job as as a as a, a doctor and as a, an orthopedic surgeon uh, I'm here to provide a service and um, 
and we are servants for our patients, basically. It's like any service job. Um, and, um, you know, we do our best to provide the best service for these patients. And, um, and the patient is always um, uh, the, um, uh, has the upper hand. And, and because we are the ones who are invading their life and, and they have to, um, uh, you know, build trust in who they allow to, um, uh, um, um, to be very, uh, you know, uh, to make decisions about them mm. when they, they don't have any power, when they are asleep uh, on the table. And, um, and I always uh, know that to me, doing a knee replacement is a knee replacement, but I always have to remember that um, a knee replacement for a patient is a life-changing experience. And uh, a lot of these people are terrified before they get on that table. I was a patient because um, I was diagnosed with cancer recently. And, um, and um, um, I was the patient uh, on the table. And, um, and I could um, see where, where people come from. Uh, and it is, uh, it is um, a... a uh, something that um, we should consider uh, very carefully and treat uh, uh, very carefully um, and um, because it's a life-changing event for these people and we have to give that um, uh, respect. Uh, yes, I imagine that own experience of being a patient must have really uh, re really affected you. Um, a couple of quick final questions as we, as we close. Uh, what's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, look, I, I quite enjoy my, my work. I'm workaholic. I work all the time, 24-7. Uh, um, 14 uh, patients today, you're telling me? Um, we have 14 patients, but I have a, a, a very good um, uh, group of um, um, friends and colleagues that I work with and um, we have uh, I'm very lucky to uh, to surround myself with a, a very very strong team and um, uh, I am definitely a team player um, I play um, within a group of people and I always say that I'm a small um, link in a big chain and <clears throat> the way medicine is going and the way medicine should be is that there is no uh, hierarchy and individual um, uh, importance, um, um, uh, you know, among um, um, uh, others, and uh, mm. um, and uh, we we all play as multidisciplinary team that we uh, we provide the care for for the patient. That's the best way uh, of conducting uh, medicine. I quite enjoy um, spending time on the harbour. I spend my uh, weekend um, uh, on my boat. Um, I I enjoy reading. I read between midnight and and two a.m. and I normally read about history. Um, and um, I play chess um, and quite enjoy spending time with my uh, little kids. Um, but. Um, um, I spend significant amount of my uh, my time in um, um, basically um, advocating for human rights, and uh, and 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 I I believe that um, I have three goals in my life, and uh, the first one is being achieved, which is. Um, providing uh, the technology of host integration to people who need it at most, uh, people who cannot afford it around the world in developing countries. And we're running a lot of pilot studies in um, um, many countries like Cambodia and Iraq and, and other places, and it's been successful. And I think before the day come that I die, um, this will happen. The second dream, I hope that one day um, our politicians will... <laughs> 
will mature um, and and think about the future of um, uh, of this country and. Um, it's a simple dream that getting a fast train from Brisbane to Melbourne, um, and 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 I strongly believe that um, um, a one four year term is much better than two three year terms because we spend too much time um, thinking about elections and we need to concentrate on building the future. My third dream, which is very difficult to achieve, and that's I wish that the day will come when I wake up and uh, I see people, uh, regardless of their colour, ethnicity, um, uh, belief, uh, would treat each other as human beings. Believe me, I, I, I cut a lot of people and every time I cut a skin, people bleed red blood. We all have the same colour blood. Ranjit Almadiris, that's all we have time for today. Uh, thank you for sharing your extraordinary life journey and uh, all the best of, best of luck with the important projects you're working on. Thank you very much. It's very kind of you to hand me. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you enjoyed the conversation with Munjed, I reckon you'll love my interviews with Susan Carland, Terry Waite, Sasanka Mseang, Anne Ali and Tim Sudpomasan. We really appreciate getting feedback, so leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.